Well, I, I think you've hit on something really, really important. And it's a thing that I actually probably spend more time talking with entrepreneurs about than anything else, which is don't raise money. And everybody's like, no, 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 but I can go raise money with this idea. Why would you do that? I'm Jim Huffman, and this is If I Was Starting Today, a collection of conversations about half-baked startup ideas, growth tactics, and stories from founders, including my own journey as a business owner. All of the content is centered around one question. What would you do if you were starting today? Today on the podcast, I speak with Evan Richardson. He is the CEO and founder of Form Health. Form Health is super impressive. They are a telehealth company that basically helps people with obesity um, and allows them to get care. And what's interesting is... Evan has taken this idea. He's raised $26 million. He's gone to 55 employees and the scale of growth is pretty insane. And so we talk about, you know, how did he get his first 10 customers? How did he get his first thousand customers? And what's interesting is he actually messed up a lot and that a lot of things didn't work until he figured out this bottom-up approach by region. And then the hack he did to essentially get to thousands of customers at a time. Uh, we also talk about what it takes as you grow a company at this rate on how he, his role changes and how he has to get better and adapt to that. We go through his background with this guy's done everything from computer science, went to Harvard, worked at Bain, worked in finance. And the things he's learned along the way and the recommendation he gives to people that are going to start a company on their own that's kind of counterintuitive. At the very end, we actually get into how to select the right idea to work on, talking about where you have an unfair advantage, talking about timing and other things, because so many people that want to start something, they actually can choose the wrong idea. Um, so this one is packed with lots of insights. So if you're at all um, looking to break out and start something and start something at a big scale, uh, I really think you're going to enjoy this episode with Evan. So, Evan, what is Form Health? Yeah, Form Health is the highest quality care provider for patients that need support with obesity and weight loss care more broadly. We are nationally available to every single individual with healthcare coverage, whether private insurance or our Medicare, and we are covered by every major insurer. Can you speak at all to the size of the company, the scale of the company, right. so people really know what we're working with here. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So so we are live nationwide. I and mean, of course, that is made possible by the fact that we're a telemedically accessed company. We're live nationwide. We treat thousands of patients today and, you know, are growing very rapidly with the broader industry. Nice. Yeah. And I saw from the amazing brief that was sent ahead of time, I believe, from part of your PR team, it is 55 employees raised $26 million. When I see that, I'm like, these guys are going for the moon. They're going big. This is super exciting. And I'm always interested, like, what wave are people trying to ride to hit this growth? And you're going after one that, one is a huge problem to solve around obesity, one that's getting more and more awareness. And so I think that's like very exciting. You always have to, you always have to build a company to suit the, the market that you're going after. We have built this company to be a venture-backed company because the, the world of obesity care 
the need for care for individuals that have obesity, which is now about 45% of the U.S. adult population, and those individuals who uh, have high levels of overweight with obesity-related comorbidities, which is altogether about 70% of the U.S. adult population, that need is so great that if you don't have a company that is built for rapid growth, you're just never going to get there. There are, you know, there's a, a ton of physicians practicing nationwide doing really excellent work at a local level treating obesity. But, you know, on that scale of, hey, I'm going to see all the patients that can come through my office today, you just can't impact uh, the, the broader problem. And that's what we're built to do. We are built to impact really the shape of the curve of the obesity epidemic in the U.S. and, and globally. That's such a good point, because I think when, I don't know, I was very dumb, well, I'm still dumb, but like starting out a business, like, oh, if you start a business, you have to raise venture capital, because that's what all the blogs say. But it, you hit on a good point. It's like, okay, what problem are you solving? What is that total addressable market? What do you need to compete? Like, I have a growth marketing agency. You don't raise money to start an agency, one, because the cost to enter is very low, and two, the overall ROI isn't that of a scale like this, whereas... I have friends, whether it's kind of going into fintech or it's going in the AI space where you have to raise money if you even want to compete, because that's going to be what you're up against. Yeah. And it's cool. It's like you found this opportunity. It's like, if you're going to do it right, this is the game you need to play. I mean, is that a fair distinction? Well, I, I think you've hit on something really, really important. And it's a thing that I actually probably spend more time talking with entrepreneurs about than anything else, which is don't raise money. <laughs> and everybody's like, no, 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 but I can go raise money with this idea. But, but why would you do that? You know, if, if you really have, if you really have a business, you know, in, in a given case where you think it's going to throw off a ton of cash, you can self-fund your growth. You know, if you really have a business that is going to work best at a local scale, then you can self-fund that growth. If you really have a business that you want to turn into a lifestyle business, well, then let's find some investors that are going to support that. It's not going to be venture capital investors. It might be you know, individuals that are looking for, for high return locally, things along those lines. But, you know, if you have a business that is that is going to be, you know, sort of able to grow to tremendous scale at tremendous speed, then that's a venture capital backable business. But if you have anything else, then you're going to do worse by raising venture capital <laughs> than if you found other sources of capital. And so, you know, the, the most common refrain that I have when I talk to folks that are, that are starting a business or you know, that have something that is working at scale, at, at a small scale, is please just don't don't go raise capital because that does change everything that, that you do. And if you know that, and if you've been through that ringer before, then, you know, venture capital is an incredible tool, right? And I, I sit as an investor and, and I sit on boards with a couple of venture capital-backed companies. Or, and, and I think, you know, there is, there's absolutely value there. And, and venture capital is a big contributor to the growth in the broader economy. But for a entrepreneur, you know, I think you really got to make sure that you have a business that's built in, mm -hmm. in that right way. Yeah, and that's so true. And can, with form, can you talk a little bit about, like, I come from the background of, like, growth and, like, how do you acquire yeah. customers? How do you scale? What was working in the early days? And, like, what are you doing now where, like, oh, wow, this is how we got traction? Was it as simple as, hey, let's do this bottoms-up approach. Let's own this market. People looking for... Obesity, like telehealth care in San Diego, and you're getting that opportunity, or was it a different path of being a thought leader? Because I think people are always struggling with, okay, the, first off, this is one of those ideas that like, will it work? But when will it work? It's like a no brainer. And so talk about the, how you got the first 10 customers versus the first thousand. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and, and, you know, as you know, well, getting the first 10 is fundamentally different from, from getting the first 10,000. 
every company that I've got to go on the adventure of starting, and this is the third or fourth, depending on how many failures you want to you count, you know, every single time, and this was no exception, you have that experience where you create something and you, of course, put a lot of work in, but even creating that MVP, right? The most bare bones thing that is going to provide value to some kind of patient or other customer that's out there. But even that, that minimum viable product, shoot, you think it's, you think it's reasonable and yeah, it's probably embarrassing in a couple of different ways and you don't think it's ready for prime time, but you know, you need to get it out there. You know, and I think that that, that model of entrepreneurship has, has been ascendant for the last couple of decades and, and it's proven itself. And even so, put that thing out there. You give that thing to the world. And every time you still expect, like, sure, somebody's going to come along and sign up, right? And in this business, you know, it, it was weeks of being live and starting to talk to folks and being able to take in patients before, you know, before we had our very first patient cross the line, right? And, you know, I think that, that of course, initially, the thing that allowed us to grab those patients was local scale, right? So we are a Massachusetts-based business. My chief medical officer is a fantastic physician named Florencia Halperin. She built and ran the obesity medicine program at the Brigham for, for about a decade before I somehow convinced her to leave the Harvard system and come and join a, a brand new startup that had, you know, next to no proof point. And, and, and the service that we offer is we provide obesity medical care. So we treat patients with obesity. We treat them for lots of what are called obesogenic comorbidities. These are comorbidities that cause weight gain, PCOS, hypothyroid, things like that. We make sure that medications they're on, things like Prozac, which are obesogenic, are not driving weight gain. And if they are, we work with their existing physicians to transition them off. Somebody on Prozac typically gains 20 pounds a year for the first three years they're on Prozac. Wow. We treat them with high-intensity dietetic care. So they work with a dietitian all the time. Our patients touch a dietitian, a form dietitian, eight times a week on average. And then we support all of that with medication, right? And of course, that's, that's the big thing that's changed in the conversation over the last year. But about 90% of our patients are taking some medication that we have prescribed for them. Most of them, not uh, GLP-1s or Ozempic, but taking some medication we prescribed for them for weight loss. And so we put that together. We had that thing assembled. We were providing obesity medical care and and we we gave that to the world and, and nobody cared, right? Yeah. So we then created I'm sorry, that, just oh, to jump in on that, because yeah. that sounds like you're truly solving a problem. You're making it custom for this persona. Sure. When you're giving it to the world, is that like, here's a landing page to like book a call and then you run sure. like a Google ads or like- yeah, Exactly. Yeah. What was that so, failure? Let's talk about so, it. Yeah, <laughs> look, I think, I, I think you know, we, we tried some of the things that we thought would be, you know, kind of early stage and scrappy. You know, we were talking- in, in some forums, we were doing, you know, targeted yeah, advertising, nice. all sorts of stuff. And at the end of the day, for those first 10 customers, what we really needed to do was, you know, focus on that kind of local scale, right? So we're a Massachusetts-based company and every single one of those customers came out of the Boston area. And they had, in some cases, they had an ability to effectively reference check the founders, right? Yeah. So they were reference checking me, they were reference checking uh, Florencia. And that was what gave those folks the confidence to go to something they'd found online that claimed to do something they hadn't heard about, which was write medications for weight loss. By the way, how many folks are willing to click a page that says weight loss medication, right? Especially four years. Hey, that's more common, right? Before you yeah. up, you're like, that's a scam. And, and so people really had to have, had to sort of build that level of trust. And, and I think, you know, that's, that's, that's not unusual, especially when you're asking for something that requires a high level of trust. There's a big difference 
between going to a web page you haven't heard about before, uh, seeing something marketed to you, and buying, uh, you know, a twenty-five dollar retail item. And you know what? If it never shows up at your house, well, you write that one off to a lesson learned. But if you then go to an appointment and take a medication that that, that somebody that you met online prescribed to you, um, you know, people will say that you know you, you had it coming if it goes terribly, right? Because who would in their right mind do that? Who you, you went, you followed a link. You saw a doctor and that doctor raped you a medication and then you yeah. took that medication. Crazy. And so I think that that high level of, of mistrust was, was certainly there in the early days, right? Because again, this was, you know, this was, uh, you know, four years ago, four and a half years ago, the, the field of obesity medicine was poorly understood. Uh, you know, there had not been this wild growth and awareness around things like something. And so it really did almost take that personal level of, of referenceability to build trust with those initial customers. Yeah. And that also becomes your mode too, which is exciting. It's like, okay, we have to start hyper-local. We know people care about like the trust and the signaling and having like pedigree and the doctor is huge. And I'm sure there's other hoops you have to jump through with being like HIPAA compliant and whatnot. This isn't like popping up a Shopify site to sell t-shirts, you know, we're talking about medical records and whatnot. But again, that's an amazing mode for you. So you're like, okay, this starts to work. You get your first 10 customers in Boston. I look at your website now. This looks like a national global brand. Connect the dots. Like, did yeah. you just do this bottoms up approach to everything? Or like, when did you start to be like, okay, how do we go from acquiring tens of people to like hundreds of people? Because yeah. that's what's so fascinating with the venture bank model is thinking of these non-linear leaps in growth. Yep. Absolutely. Well, look, I think, you know, a lot of our challenge was around credibility. And, and you know, I do think there's, there's a unique aspect to what we were doing, which was, although we have built a lot of our business on direct-to-consumer, we never intended to be a direct-to-consumer company. We've always intended to sell most of our, most of our business into employer payers, folks that are writing the checks for insurance, Mar- and into carriers. And so, though we really had to develop that direct-to-consumer business, and although I think that having a direct-to-consumer business as a company that sells through carriers or through employers is actually like the best darn thing we can do to give ourselves discipline to really create a product that people love, right? Because at the end of the day, you got to still sell B2C. You got to make sure it's a product people love. You got to make sure they're willing to pull out their own wallet and pay for it, even though most of your business may come through a carrier or through an employer. But, but because we always intended to sell through carriers and employers, we were really focused on in the early days with our D2C business was building, was, was taking the credibility and the trust of the patients gave us when they came in and got here and building that into real credibility for employers, right? Because what an employer wants to see when they go to buy a benefit is they want to see, hey, you've treated folks at scale, you've treated folks across my geographies, you've treated folks that look like my patients and you've gotten awesome outcomes and patients love it. And if you can show an employer those things, well, now you can start to do deals coming back to your, your point about scale where you're writing, you know, one contract, not for one individual, but you're writing a contract for thousands, then tens of thousands, then hundreds of thousands of covered lives all in one fell swoop. And I think that was always, you know, where we were building that business. So, you know, initial scale focused around D2C, that was small, right? Then we needed to get a little bit bigger on D2C. And so we started to expand our footprint and expand that into a nationwide footprint over the course of a couple of years really going state by state. And we did transition from patients that really could reference check us to patients who could reference check each other, right? And, and how would they do that? Well, they'd look to things like Google reviews. They'd look to things like, you know, other sort of online tools that would talk about form and sometimes talk about form in the context of the broader weight loss space. And I think, you know, all of that is back to trust, right? And so, you know, with patients, especially, it's about how do you build that trust first at a, you know, one to 10 patients level, 
And now, you know, growing to hundreds and thousands and really you just have to find new ways to build trust across a much bigger, bigger uh, population. Yeah, that's, that's so smart. And so for people listening, it's like D to C out of the gate to prove the concept and then make that nonlinear leap. I guess you call it like B to B to C, because if you go to the Form Health website, there's a really nice badge on there that says covered by insurance, which essentially makes, make, makes this a no brainer. Because guess what? If you work for Pepsi, this is going to be covered by the insurance. If you work for Pepsi, you're probably drinking a lot of Pepsi. You, you might be obese. I, I'm making a lot of horrible stereotypes, uh, but like, that's such a smart path in. So, all right, now, now you made this nonlinear leap. Like, Where's your head at now as you're looking to grow and scale this thing? We talked before, like you're not currently fundraising. You've, you've done a good job of um, funding the company. Are you in growth mode right now? Are you in retention mode? Are you in like, how do I keep this thing together mode? Like where, where are you at? Yeah. Well, the funny thing about businesses that are venture backed is often you have multiple of those things overlapping all at once. Right. And, and, you know, anytime, anytime you're growing fast as a venture backed company, you look at the way you did things six months ago. And you say, ah, boy, we've changed a lot in the last six months. And then you think about the scale you're at today and say, boy, we've got a lot that we have to change between now and even six months from now. So, you know, I think if you're, if you're growing at an appropriate rate with a venture-backed company, there's always something where when you look six months down the road, you say, huh, if we can't improve the way we're doing X, then, you know, we're going to feel like we need to hold things together, right? But today, form, you know, really is entirely focused on, on growth, right? You know, I think. The thing that we haven't talked about is in our space in the last nine months, one really big thing has changed and it has impacted trust from patients, but also it has impacted sort of recognition from employers and caregivers now that there's a real need to start to aggressively move into this space. And that thing is everybody found out that Ozempic works as a weight loss medication. And, mm -hmm. you know, of course, Ozempic is a, is a diabetes medication as approved by the FDA, but there's a lot of off-label prescribing. Ozempic is a medication called semaglutide, and semaglutide also goes to market under the name Wigovi, and Wigovi is exclusively for weight loss. And so over the last, you know, I'd call it nine months, there was a ton of talk initially on TikTok, but now in the form of, you know, an article published every 13 minutes, more or less, on Google News. It's like a celebrity miracle drug, right? That makes you drop all your weight, essentially. That, that, is, that is not how we would describe it, probably not surprisingly, <laughs> but there's a lot of articles that do describe it that way. And, yeah. and I would say, that, by the way, that's, that's, that's not accurate. And, that, you know, a real discussion of, of what Ozempic can do and for whom it's appropriate and all of that sort of stuff, you know, it involves a lot of specifics about patients, right? That's why it takes real medical care, uh, in our view, as opposed to just somebody who's going to write you a script and send you out your way. But that change in patient awareness of this space has been transformative because if you talk to the patient even two years ago and you said, hey, we provide online medical care for obesity and part of that is we write medications. Patients would two years ago have said, that's not real. Come on. If that was real, though, the medication that helped people lose weight, you know, I've really changed the game there. I would have heard about it. So I just don't believe you, right? And there was a high degree of skepticism, but that's changed now. So that trust has now been built in the broader market Patients understand that there is, whether it's Ozempic, whether it is something like a Wigobi, whether it's a, a Saxenda, whether it is something like metformin or no medication at all, but just high intensity medical treatment, there are, are alternate paths that really help with weight loss. And that has really driven a ton of people to say, let me try that. And so I think that's the biggest thing that's changed. And that you know, has really kind of come along, right? We, you know, we were building this business that was targeted to employers. You know, we were very focused on building credibility for employers. And as we have built that business, the thing that changed in the world outside was, you know, patients suddenly realized there's a real opportunity here. And so that has definitely driven a lot of growth, not just for us, but I think, you know, across the city.
Are you a business owner in desperate need of talent, but you have issues finding good people? Or worse, you find the talent, but then they want you to pay them double what you have budgeted. Yeah, I know the feeling. This is where remotely talents can help. Imagine having a personal HR team that finds you A plus talent, and here's the best part, it costs you 40 or even 80% less than US employees. It's magic. So let's say you need help with setting up your social ads, your Google ads, email marketing, website development, customer service. Their team sources the top Ukrainian talent for you and they deliver three top vetted candidates straight to your inbox. It's a one-time payment and best yet, they give you a 60-day guarantee to ensure you're happy. Hey, if it doesn't work out, they'll find and replace the talent for free. Even better, 3% of all sales go to the Children's Hospital in Ukraine. At Growth Head, our agency, we've hired four people from Ukraine. I am blown away by the level of work we're getting. So whether you need a virtual assistant or a creative director, give this a try. Go to remotelytalents.com right now and start a conversation. See if they can help you. You really have nothing to lose. That's so interesting. You're already riding this big wave. The Zimbabwe come in where people are probably seeking out more information if they can get prescribed that. And you are a way for people to gather that, right? So it's like wanting to make sure you're, you're maximizing all the demand right there. I, I have a question for you. I'm, I'm so fascinated with people that can grow with the company because your role changes, right? You're like, you're like, a product guy, you're a validation guy, then you have to be an evangelist and you're a salesperson. And then, you know, it's a finance guy. It's, it's all these different hats you have to wear as a CEO, especially as it grows. And there's kind of two things I want to throw at you to see like your thoughts on it. One is, I think it's every time your teams double, things break and you kind of have to rebuild it. And like, again, my company, like we're, we're just over 30 people, so much, much smaller, but it's like, um, we were a different company at 10 people versus 20, which doesn't sound significant, but it kind of is just because all of a sudden I'm removed when it's over 10. And that was a big leap. And then my buddy, he is the CMO of a publicly traded company called Veronis. And he gave this other framework to me that has stuck with me. He goes, I think there's two types of people when you're growing. You have the builders who are good from zero to one, and then you have the scale it uppers. I think he stole it from Dave Kellogg, actually. They go from like one to whatever. And he said the people that have helped them go from basically 25 million to half a billion in sales were the scale it uppers that could think bigger and always think with systems and processes. And he had to train himself to go from a builder to a scale it upper. So I'd be interested as you've grown your team and the way you run, what are some things you've had to learn? What are some things that if you were giving advice to somebody else, you would pass along? Look, I think that the, uh, the kind of two frameworks that you, you just referenced, this notion that, you know, as things double, everything breaks, and this notion that you really do have two, two kinds of people in a company as it grows. I, I think both of those are, are absolutely right. And, and whether it's, you know, hey, when the size doubles, it breaks, or whether there's some other kind of benchmarks, I think it's, you know, as, as you get, as you get a little bit bigger, you do get a little bit more scalable. That is the growth from, you know, 100 to 200 probably isn't as painful, actually, as the growth from 20 to 50. But, but, you know, this notion that all of your processes have to be torn out and replaced maybe every six months and hopefully your tools can last, you know, eight to 10 months if you're lucky and, and those then have to be torn out. You know, I think that's, that's absolutely, that's absolutely right. And, and, you know, I think the challenge of sitting in any, any kind of management role, I don't think it's just the CEO. I think it's the case for every single one of my executives and all of the people managers that sit below them 
is that the role does change pretty dramatically. You know, our, our lead dietitian is a, is a fantastic dietitian. She is also a, a excellent manager of people, but she'd never really taken on that people manager role before. And in the last couple of years, you know, her team has now grown to, to, to very large size. And so she's now, you know, in a very short period of time, gone from being an individual contributor, trying to figure out with me what our dietetic curriculum might look like three years ago to, you know, now managing teams of managers. And those are fundamentally different. And by the way, in a startup, you have to sort out how to do that without any kind of training program, <laughs> right? You know, if you, if you work for Intel and you come in as, as somebody who's been identified as a high potential individual contributor, you come in with a background, you spend some time in a role, you know, you maybe get two years in a role that's very well-defined. You go into some sort of management training program, then they start to move you through roles over time. And that's like well-defined and they've seen success with the process. You know, our, our lead dietitian, Julia, uh, she's had to do all of this on her own. Yeah, with input from me, with input from, from, from her, her manager. But at the same time, a lot has had to be sort of discovered because she is in a, a small company. And by the way, you know, when you are remote, right, this is something a lot of new companies over the last three years have discovered when you're remote, um, everything happened in a different way. And, and to some extent, everything is more challenging, right? Because instead of being able to lean over and say, okay, here's the thing that I'm facing, you got to find time and you got to jump on Zoom. Yes, Slack is there, but it's not quite the same, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, I think this, this notion of an evolving role is not just the case for the CEO or the senior executives. I think it really goes all the way down for anybody who's a people. Right. No. Um, for me, you know, I think the, the lessons learned, you know, often are, are probably the most focused around uh, things where I'm not, you know, naturally the strongest. Right. I tend to think that, you know, I'm maybe not always systems thinking focused. Right. For me, a lot of my focus is around, OK, well, how do we do this in a high impact way? And how do we do this for, you know, our first X for our first X customers? And then, you know, to some extent, that next scale, you can recast in a similar model. Well, we've done this for 10 folks now. How do we do it for 100? Okay, we've done that. And that's fine, right? But I think that there is a different mindset to, you know, continually thinking that for systems. All right. And so what I generally do is, is, you know, I, I try to surround myself with folks that think differently from me, you know? And, and so I think you don't always see this in every startup, right? You often see that you know, the executive team all leans in and thinks pretty similarly. You know, that's not the case with our executive team here. And, and I think, you know, that's sometimes challenging. Sometimes we have, you know, some, some challenging direct and front conversation. But by and large, I think it helps us to see around corners. And if we're not, you know, if we don't have a, a team that is built to be able to sort of handle all the different aspects of a growing startup, and if we don't have a team that thinks differently about, you know, each of the problems we face, then, you know, we're going to get, we're going to get short-sighted. We're going to focus on, you know, some of the wrong aspects of things. We're not going to solve problems effectively. So the most effective thing that I see for evolving my role or for Ray being able to handle a lot of different challenges in an evolving goal really is to just find people that have orthogonal people. Right. It's like that, that's such good advice because that's the biggest leverage you can have as one person. It's like you have leverage in the form of like money, technology, and people. And if you can get those A plus players to sit in the right seats, especially the compliments your weaknesses or, or where you need a strength, that is huge. And it's like such simple, obvious advice. But when you do it, you're like, oh my gosh, this is so much better. Cause I, I struggle with, you know, getting the, the been there, done that versus the up and comer, right? Because it's like, sometimes you can get that been there, done that. And you're like, oh my gosh, it's like, where have you been my whole life? It's no, what used to be a huge problem is no longer problemed. Or can you get that up and comer that you catch them at that right point? And I've, I've made that mistake on both of those, but I've also like had a workout on both of those. So that, yeah, I, it, it's, yeah, good advice. Hey. 
hard to execute. Fun, fundamentally, yeah, hard to execute. And, and and fundamentally, you know, either of those roles that you talk about can work really well or, or be really challenged. And I'll tell you transparently, I've probably been more challenged with folks who are in the in the been there done that role or or sort of you know area than in the in the up and cover. Uh, I think that you know the when it doesn't work well with the with the been there done that, it's because they're they're though they think they're ready, they're not yet ready to jump back into early stage. Uh, whereas, you know, you're up and comers, it, if you find somebody who's going to run through a wall, maybe you put them on the wrong wall first. Maybe they bounce off of that first <laughs> one, but you're probably going to be able to find a wall that they can run through. And it'll probably be a place you have a gap because, you know, for early stage companies, you got gaps. All over. Yeah, that's such a good point. So where you go wrong with the up and comer, or I'm sorry, the been there, done that, it's like, they're either not down to go to that level where they need to maybe do more execution than strategy, or is it not adapting what they did to what's happening in 2023, or maybe a little bit of both? Well, I, I maybe maybe a little bit of both. And then I think the biggest one is just is, is me, right? Like I, when it happens, I have misidentified where their expertise is going to be valuable. I've misidentified where their skill set is really going to be valuable, or I've misidentified the gap that I'm trying to get them to fill, right? You know, most yeah. folks, if you're hiring somebody at a, at a senior executive level, you, you're going to find somebody with a track record of success. You're going to find somebody that references well. You're going to find somebody who, you know, who, who is confident in the area that, that you're bringing them in for. And I would say out of those folks across, you know, the last, the last three companies, you know, maybe, you know, across the management teams that I've been part of, we've had a success rate of, you know, 50%. Given all of those things, right? Yeah. And when, you know, when kind of after the fact, we would stop and we would say, okay, well, why was it that, you know, pick, pick a person's name. There's nobody in my past that named, <laughs> named, named Bob, right? But yeah. like, why wasn't Bob successful here? Well, really, it was, Bob was actually really good at this thing that was 10 degrees separate. Bob wasn't really yeah. a salesperson. He was really an accounts person, even though his role had said sales before. He was a really great account person and we hired him into a sales role. So we didn't yeah. know how to develop, he didn't know how to develop new clients in the same way, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And and you know what? That's actually not Bob's fault. That is my fault for hiring wrong. And so, you know, I would say most of the time, you know, I've misidentified somebody, which maybe is maybe that tells you why the the been there done that's I at least have a little bit harder time with. Because if you do make that mishire, well, you know, their skill set is for the thing that they know how to do, right? You think it's that thing 10 degrees to the right, but in reality, like they're really good at what they know how to do and, and, and you didn't do it right. You didn't hire them right. Yeah, that's such a good point because I made that same mistake. We got this awesome salesperson, but he was more of a closer than a hunter. And I didn't realize until it was too late. It's like, actually, we don't need the closer. We need the hunter. We need the pipeline builder. And it was a example. A painful, painful experience for everyone involved and so, right. yeah right. and because especially when you're growing you're like you just need a body throw them in the role and you're trying to do it the right <laughs> way but yeah so i i want to pause and go let's go back to kind of evan pre-form health what was life like before that i know you had like a, a tour of duty at bain and consulting yeah love to kind of see this like linear path that led to this you mentioned three other company or a couple other companies you've done because I'm interested in the path and how it started to get the bug of doing your own thing. Yeah, I have. So, so, so I would say I had the bug. If, if you're asking kind of where that came from, that came from sitting around the, the dinner table as a kid, right? And so my my dad was a as a mid level manager at, at Seagram, which was at the time the largest distilled spirits and wine brand owner in the world. 
And, and he was super successful there. But what I saw around, you know, dinnertime conversation was a lot of challenges that stemmed not from my perception, stemmed not from, from, from performance, but stemmed from politics. And yeah, just seeing, that just seemed challenging, right? And we all know that, you know, that, that kind of goes both ways. Now, you know, 40 plus years on, let's say, okay, well, there, there might've been more going on, right? Than what you see as a kid. But yeah. to me, you know, what I wanted to find was someplace where at the end of the day, you know, that performance was really going to be the thing that, that decided success or failure. Mm-hmm. I think there's an interesting and robust conversation to be had about whether entrepreneurship is actually that as well, because boy, there's a bunch of luck that goes into it that you have to mix with performance oh, yeah. in order to get that great outcome. But again, you know, I think something that, that I didn't see uh, as, as a young person, you know, I, I went to school, I was a computer science major and I wanted to do that because I loved math and it felt, you know, that I was, was kind of learning a trade. And, and I like that. I liked having, you know, a, a, a something that was pretty academic, but at the same time, produce something tangible in the form of, yeah. right, you know, the form of software that we built. But, uh, but I went to work. I did my first couple of internships at like really, really like big, very old enterprise software. And so I remember one day, like sitting in my cubicle and, you know, everybody in the office around me, there was a guy who slept at his desk every day at lunch. You know, mm-hmm. mostly people were working on software that had been sold, you know, a decade earlier and they were just sort of, you know, figuring out little tiny customer issues. And I remember sitting there thinking, huh, this is really different from what I've done, you know, in school and what I get interested in. And I, I guess this is the world of computing, right? Maybe I'd done an internship yeah. at Google. Maybe I'd done an internship at, you know, way back when I talked Yahoo or some of these brands that are now way, way over still. I mean, you know, things would have been different. But I sat there and I said, well, the heck with this. This is not what I want to be doing. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, I decided to go get myself a general business education. I ended up at Bain Company on the consulting yeah. side. I was there for three years. And and, and I, I actually would argue that, that was some of the most valuable time that that I could have had as a young person. I think a lot of people who are focused on entrepreneurship say, I got to get out. There's going to be nothing better than learning how a business works. So I'm going to do business. And and there is truth to that. There absolutely is truth to say, just get your feet wet, right? Let's figure out what's what. But it also really helps to understand what success looks like, right? I I know a lot of a lot of entrepreneurs, close friends and distant friends who have had you know kind of one challenge after another, one company that failed after it. And part of that is bad luck, as we talk about. But part of it is also just not knowing what success looks like and not knowing how a successful company runs. And I think that is true. It has a, a, you know, and not knowing what a successful young company looks like, but I think also just like knowing how big scale successful businesses work, understanding, you know, financial discipline, understanding, you know, how you learn effectively from your competitors and how you innovate and create something new, right? All of those things were pretty darn important. And, and then, you know, she, as a young person, I think even just, you know, understanding how to act in a professional environment, you know, like all these things that you kind of learn in that first job. And so I, I wouldn't trade those three years being for, for anything. You know, and, and from there, I, I jumped into the finance of all places. And I started to actually get a long ways away from entrepreneurship. But, you know, so I was, I was at a private equity fund called Berkshire Partners, very successful here in Boston. I just celebrated their, their 35th, I think, anniversary. And so, you know, been around for a long time. Very stayed, you know, some of their, their most successful businesses have been in things like plastic irrigation pipe. And, yeah. you know, like <laughs> buying the land under cell phone towers. Things that aren't, you know, all that exciting to, to a lot of folks thinking about um, but again, you know, really learned a lot of tools around financial discipline, learned how investors think, and, and really crucially, learn how money gets allocated, right? And, yeah. and I think for anybody who is thinking about, who's thinking about starting a company, you know, it, you don't have to be a financial whiz. I mean, I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't sure myself that way either. You don't have to be, you know, really, really deep on the finance side in order to be successful. But 
you know, finance and, and cash is the lifeblood of any business in the same way that gasoline makes your car go. And so you do really well to at least have a basic understanding of how an internal combustion engine works. If you're going to go on a road trip of a thousand miles. And similarly, I think, you know, having a, whether it's, whether it's from, you know, being on the investment banking side or being on the investor side, et cetera, I think, you know, folks that spend time as investors tend to have a little bit higher hit rate, I think, with, within their companies. And so to me, those things work out well together. And, and after that, I called him. I said, you know, geez, after a couple of years in finance, now I actually have to go and do something or, you know, or I'm going to spend the last five years saying, no, eventually I'm going to start a company. And I just have to throw it out. And so that was, that was when I, I transitioned to, to earlier stage companies and start. Well, okay. I want to get into the, the leads out to the founder journey, but one, two things worth calling out that I think are worth kind of going deeper on is one, I think everybody that is an entrepreneur yeah, that really wants to, they get super impatient. So impatient where they could pick the wrong idea, ride the wrong horse because they want to do that. I know I was like that and had a million failures. But you bring up a good point. Like you need to see what success looks like. Like jump on a startup that's or a company that's doing really well. And the cool thing about being at a consulting firm like Bain is you're getting a lot of reps in what success yep. looks like and not just one business model, right? Because I was... A part of a startup where I was like employee 27, saw it go to 170, and then I saw it go down. And that was like, man, that was an MBA in itself right there, just going through that yeah. experience. And then another thing that you say is really understanding accounting and finance, where it might not sound exciting to people, but that is the language of business. Whether it's a tour of duty at an iBank or something, it's really valuable. Because then you're kind of learning on someone else's dime. You're getting the tool set. So your escape velocity to do your own thing could yep. be much, much faster. I think, that's, I think that's right. Your, your point about reps, by the way, is often pretty heavily criticized, right? A lot of folks say, well, yeah, fine. You're, you're, you're Benny, you're McKinsey, you're BCG, you're one of your Deloitte, you're one of these consulting firms. If you're getting reps in at a Fortune 500 company, how useful is that when you go to start something? And I would say, actually, not all of it, but, but a lot of it actually is pretty Useful, I would say conversely, if you're looking at a bunch of startups that are one to five, right? And there's, there's plenty of folks who say, you know what you need to do is go out and, and get an internship in earlier stage company. The reality of a business that are at one to five employees is nobody has any idea what the hell is going on. You're all just trying to feel your way around a darkened room. And, you know, like the stuff you're doing day to day is really just, you know, like you're, you're calling on your, uh, your sort of, you know, basic street skills and your ability to, you know, just put one foot in front of the other. And it's, clear to me that in that environment, you're learning much more if you've never been in a professional environment before, again, mm-hmm. as a young person, right? And and I think you're right. Impatience can really be challenging because you, you have an opportunity as a young person to learn a ton and then take all that learning and invest it into something bigger. And if you, if you, uh, unless you're, unless you're wildly successful, you know, and, and, unless, and that takes more luck, right? Unless you're wildly successful in that first early thing you do, you know, what often happens is you have a few failures. You don't actually learn that much because you're learning what bad looks like. And, and there's just like Edison and the light bulb, right? There's every different kind of bad. There's a thousand different versions of bad. And what yeah. you really want to do is one version that's good. Yeah. Uh, that's, a, that's such a good point. And so if you, so you still have not answered my question on how you started companies. So you have gone <laughs> down this path, computer science, old school, enterprise SaaS, Bain, BA, then you start to be like, okay, I want to intentionally go to startups. I intentionally want to do that. Talk about going down that path and when you started doing things on your own. Yeah. 
It's a great, it's a great question. And I would say, you know, so, so I, I went, I spent two years doing an MBA. Uh, I came out of there and I, I still, frankly, didn't feel like I had the passion about one thing that I needed, like one specific idea to go in and just like start that thing. And so, you know, I went and I worked for another early stage healthcare company. And this one was earlier, you know, this was probably Series B funding company called Cathlight at the time. I was there in the first hundred employees. And, you know, and, and I think that was a great example of, you know, them starting to learn a specific area and seeing a lot of, of real innovation happening. But again, at a company that, you know, had that kind of knew what success was. And, and you know, I was there for about 18 months and then I pulled the plug and I was, I was impatient. And my wife was about seven months pregnant and just had a bunch of conversations with close friends that more or less went like, what the heck am I doing? It's been 10 years. I said I was going to start a company. I went, I did this stuff at Bain and Berkshire. I went, I got an MBA. I work here at this successful startup. I'm still like, I'm still sitting on my hand, right? Like I just had a number. Uh, and my wife had seven months pregnant said, okay, fantastic. Babe, I support you. By the way, she was in the middle of a surgical fellowship program, right? So, you know, there was nobody, there was nobody earning enough money to put food on the table. And I left and I started, a, I started a company in a space I had no, I, no idea, no real understanding of, which was a personal finance startup. Mm-hmm. And it lasted about three months. And I spent, you know, in the thousands of dollars of my personal resources on it. And, uh, and it went, right. And <laughs> that was an important lesson. And, and just as it was, uh, just as it was, as was kind of circling the drain, there was somebody who I had been spending a bunch of time with helping on his startup that he was working on, a fellow named Owen Tripp. And, uh, and ultimately Owen. And Rusty Hoffman, who's a, a, a professor at Stanford on the medical side, and I helped start a company called Grand Rapids. And that one actually looked like it might have uh, some opportunity for success. Why? Because it was a space that I had experience in. It was in the healthcare tech space, just like the last company, Castlight, that I've been at. Uh, I was in a role where I was a clear and direct contributor to that team. I was, you know, sort of the, the generalist across product and finance and some of our early efforts at marketing. Um, and we had a team that, you know, really was very unique. We were in a, we were a healthcare company. We had a physician with really direct area knowledge. We had me as the business and, and health tech generalist. And we had a CEO that had a, a wildly successful track record, you know, with other companies, not in the healthcare space directly, but he knew that that space really. And it turns out that, you know, that's the kind of team that you actually have an opportunity to drive success with. So we, we, we did, we reached out to that company and well, it was off the race. That's awesome. And so is that company still going or did you all sell it? Yeah, that, that company today is called Include Health. We started it. It was called Grand Rounds. It was initially a company that focused on expert medical opinion. So when you've got a diagnosis of something scary, come to us and we'll make sure you get, you know, the best person in the world to, to focus yeah. on it. We sold that through the employer, just like my company, my last company, Castlight, had before that. We sold that through the employer and we evolved over time. And today that company is one of the largest navigators, healthcare navigators. So they work with employers to make sure that employees get great quality care. And that higher quality care ends up saving the employees a bunch of money at the end of the day. And now they also purchased a company called Doctor on Demand and merged with them here a couple of years ago. And so now they're, they're probably the largest teleprimary and NAV service that's out there. Yeah, that's amazing. So with Included Health, you you sell it. And then talk to how it goes to form. And a question, you don't have to give the specifics, but I'm just interested. It's like, so you you kind of, you have this fail, you you pay your 30K or 50K tuition for the failed startup. We'll call it tuition. Sure. It's not a sub yeah. cost. That's right. But it potentially opens the door for this, which is a great exit. And like, what is a great exit? Are you getting new money where it's like island time? Or is it like, hey, this is doing well and it's you you've got something really nice or like what is that scale and i asked because talk about how that leads to like the hunger and what you want to do for form health 
Yeah, well, and that's a great question. I, so, so, so that company, Intuited, is, is still operating, and the vast, vast majority of my equity is still there. Includes gotcha. Go. So yeah. I'd say that appetite's still there because you come home every day, and the kids are like, "Hey, Dad, you know, like, what, are we going on vacation this summer?" Like, I don't know. Let's see what happens. I got to, I got to do something at work. You know, I, <laughs> I think having having an opportunity like that with a company that is successful, whether it's liquid or not, it certainly, you know, it, it will, I think, allows you to do something a little bit more risky with the next summer. Right. And, you know, I think one thing that I've seen and other folks that have been able to be successful is that they can take multiple shots on goal. Right. And so, you know, I'm fortunate in a couple of ways. My wife is the surgeon. And so, you know, if, if everything goes poof, well, there's still going to be food on the table at the end of the day. And, you know, yeah. maybe it's, maybe there's no summer vacation, right? But there's still food. <laughs> and, you know, and, and now having had success with included, you know, there's an opportunity to have some confidence that kids go to college, all that sort of stuff. And what that allows me to do is really to kind of sit back and say, okay, well, what is the next thing that feels like it's maybe unlikely, that feels like it's, you know, a little ways ahead of the curve because you never want to be starting a business that is right in the middle of the zeitgeist because if you're just getting started when everybody else is talking about it, you've totally missed the curve, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, what's that next thing that is a few years ahead of its time? What's that next thing that's going to really have a big impact and not just drive you know, some sort of, you know, good outcome for my investors, but it's also going to, you know, to, to really, uh, you know, drive a change for the individuals that we're working with. And that's one of the nice things about healthcare, right? We always have the impact of our patients. And, and so that really creates our double bottom line. And for me, that next thing was, was this obesity space because it felt like so much was changing and because the need was so raw and so, so important to folks. The other thing that you called out, I think people need to pay attention to is, when you're selecting the next thing, you said like, don't do something that's like at the top of mind for the zeitgeist because it's too late. So timing is so important with this. Another thing that you did that as we're like reading between the lines here is you went where you have an unfair advantage, right? Like you've been in this space. There's things that you know that people don't know. You have that unique insight. It's just this perfect recipe for finding founder business fit, right? If if you will, which is which is so important, choosing like the right game to play. Yeah, well, look, I think uh, reality of any startup is the deck is wildly stacked against, right? You know, <laughs> yeah. Nobody knows that they need your service. You've got incumbents kind of whatever you're going into, you've got incumbents that want to smash you, right? And so you need to find those places where you do have a you know, unfair advantage over the rest of the market. I think, you know, Figuring out where the buck is going to go to is probably the most important thing. You know, for me, I, the first time I looked at the obesity space was actually way back when I was still in business. Looked pretty deeply at the company that decided not to start something. Mm. Had a view for obesity care that was 10 years old. And so you combine that with the experience, you know, at Included, at places like Gaslight. And it really did sort of create an opportunity to say, okay, I think I can put the pieces together. I think I can tell in my head a story for what the next few years did one look like. And I think I know how to build a business that's going to be impactful, but also robust to change, right? Yeah. And I think that's that's what we've that's what we've built and that's what we've created. And then, you know, lucky for us, as we're doing that, the world understands that, you know, what we're what we're spending time on is pretty important and that there are new tools in the form of Ozempic and other medications that make a big difference. Man, there's so many good things here. I'm gonna be respectful of time. So I've got two more questions for you, and then I'll let you get on with your life. I think the first one is. I'm just trying to get some free startup ideas from you. You have this unique perspective on the intersection of health and technology. Obviously, you're all in on form. What are other 
things people should should start in this space. Or you could be like, no, Jim, I have a great idea for direct consumer like baby brand. Open to, to that as well. What in anything you're seeing where you're like, man, someone needs to build that or do that, or feel free to keep all your ideas to yourself. My guess is that right now, if you query 20 healthcare investors and entrepreneurs, 19 of them will say something about the power of, of large language models. Uh, and <laughs> so leave that aside. You know, I think that there probably is something there, but I think that it's going to look way different than, than most folks think. Look, I think it's challenging. Today in healthcare, to create something that that is going to grow to scale, if it does not also positively impact the total cost of care in the system, right? So that is, if your solution is we're gonna find a way to get fifteen percent more cardiac bypass surgeries done, right? Because we got a better way to cardiac bypass or something like that. It's ultimately pretty pretty challenging to scale in, in this environment that we have today because cost is such a big kind of challenge. If you have a solution that says, I can drive 20% better or 50% better or 200% better outcomes for half the cost, you will have, you will have a, a fantastic opportunity to grow your business. And so I think, you know, what I see that's interesting when I'm looking at, at new businesses today that are you know, pitching at the seed stage or series A, now, is a lot of businesses that sort of look at, you know, a, a area of care and find a way to reduce total cost of care while improving outcomes. Then, you know, I, I would argue Form does that, right? We reduce the cost of obesity care by providing high quality expert care. And that ultimately reduces total system cost because people get healthier. They don't have a lot of comorbidities from obesity. We, we reduce total pharmacy costs, et cetera. But I'm also seeing similar models, you know, in, you know, in the cardiac space where folks are using remote tools to provide care at a distance to make sure that people are having better quality of care and therefore they're not coming into the ER as frequently, things like that. And so I think, you know, sometimes this is fairly mundane, right? You know, it's, it's taking a model that's been proven in the hospital and finding a way to deliver it remotely with new tools and to do that in a way that's measurable and monitorable. And I think all of those things are pretty interesting. And then, look, I think the other thing that's happening that, that is real opportunities are more thematic than, than like really, really specific. But I think the other thing that's happening is patients are shifting away from saying, I want to go to my doctor and they'll tell me what's up to saying, I think I have a problem with X. And so I need to go and get that treated, right? I think I have a problem with my weight and I want to get that treated. And I've got a perspective when I show up to the doctor's office, I'm going to be pretty well. And what that is allowing to happen is the growth of national scale Vertically focused care models. Again, talking my own book here, right? But you know, we provide obesity care nationwide, right? We are the first nationally scaled model to be able to do that. And five years ago, you know, that never happened. I think that you're going to see a lot more medical businesses that are national in scale, but really focused on one area of care, right? And I think that is because you know you can then build a brand that actually is pretty impactful. You can do omni-channel marketing. You can look at all sorts of different ways to acquire customers, but also acquire payers at a different scale. And that, that that's so good. And a call you said is like how you can create something where the delivery model can have like almost exponential or like a next level results. Because like we, we worked with the client Sword Health where they essentially were doing physical therapy that you can do online. And then I've seen a decent amount in like the mental health space. But uh, no, that, that that's that's super interesting. So last question I'd like to ask everybody is, what is the nicest thing anyone's done for you in your professional career? 
And it could be an actual nice thing, or it could be some tough love that somebody gave you. I'm always interested to hear what, what people, people say with this one. Gosh, there's, there's so many. And I think this is actually, you know, one challenge. I think if you're, if you're, if you are interacting with the wider world and you're not a terrible person, then generally <laughs> people are going to want to help you. And oftentimes those things are, are pretty transformed, right? You know, so one that pops to mind, a pretty mundane one, but it was just, you know, somebody, somebody kind of leading in me on this trajectory. And I was way back when I'd been spending, you know, three or four years on the consulting and finance. Side. And I went and I talked to one of my mentors and, and I said, you know, gee, I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about sort of, you know, stopping this side of the career and going and doing those things. And I said, oh, I want to do going, starting some companies, you know, I'm, I'm looking at much earlier stage companies. You ever see anybody do that successfully? You know, when they've had this background, like you ever seen somebody with a, a big three consulting and a, a private equity background, like anybody you knew, not just somebody you heard about, like yeah. anybody you know ever done that? And and the woman, the woman's name was Grace Hynings, and um, she's now an executive here in Boston area. And, and she said, no, I, I don't think I ever have actually, like I've seen people try and they kind of hit the wall. And then, you know, I said, of course, she's saying that and she did, she's continuing her sentence as a, a continuing thought. But as she's saying that, you know, in my own head, I'm like, yeah, man, that's, that's the rough odds, you know, because I yeah. try to be realistic. And, so, and she said, but, but I think you can do it. You know, like you can look at these, these things a little bit differently. And, and I, I'll tell you, it's these silly things that sometimes happen kind of on your road. And, and you'd say like, why, why would you care? Right. And just another person. And by the way, you, you know, I've had a thousand people say like, it's never going to work. Why are you doing this yeah. now? Right. And, yeah. and, and yet that has stood out in my mind for years. I, I've never told this story to her. I, I should at some point in time. Uh, but, uh, you know, like that has stood out. And when things are challenging, I kind of remember looking back and say, okay, well, like here, here was a person who I knew and I respected a ton. And, and in some ways that's enabled it. I mean, there's a thousand other stories of people like actually providing like material support and comfort, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, half a long way, but that's just what jumps to mind. Well, especially at ones where it's a little bit more like fragile as an idea and where you're going, that's when it's that much more important, you know? Mm-hmm. So very cool. Well, um, I mean, this has been super fun, man. This is very impressive. Like what you've done and what you're building. If people want to learn more about form or about you, where should they go? Where can we direct them? Great question. Uh, folks can find us at shamhelp.co. Well, cool. Well, Evan, this was a blast, man. I really appreciate the time. I know sure. you're I really appreciate very it. busy. Fun. Awesome. Thank you. Have a good one. Cheers. I'll give a few plugs. First, I send a weekly newsletter each Thursday featuring five articles or tools that have helped me. You can sign up for these weekly updates at jimwhuffman.com. Second, for anyone running a startup, if you need help growing your business, check out Growth Hit. Growth Hit serves as your external growth team. After working with over 100 startups and generating a quarter billion in sales for clients, Growth Hit has perfected a growth process that's hell-bent on driving ROI through rapid experiments. Plus, you'll get to work with yours truly. So if you want to work with a team that's worked with startups that have been funded by Andreessen Horowitz or featured on Shark Tank, then check out growthhit.com. And finally, I wrote a book called The Growth Marketer's Playbook that takes everything I've learned as a growth mentor for venture-backed startups, and I've distilled it down to 140 pages. So instead of hiring a growth team, save yourself some money, get the book, and you can just do it yourself. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I'd love to hear feedback. I'm on Twitter at Jim W. Huffman. Are you a business owner in desperate need of talent? 
but you have issues finding good people. Or worse, you find the talent, but then they want you to pay them double what you have budgeted. Yeah, I know the feeling. This is where Remotely Talents can help. Imagine having a personal HR team that finds you A-plus talent, and here's the best part, it costs you 40 or even 80% less than US employees. It's magic. So let's say you need help with setting up your social ads, your Google ads, email marketing, website development, customer service. Their team sources the top Ukrainian talent for you and they deliver three top vetted candidates straight to your inbox. It's a one-time payment and best yet, they give you a 60-day guarantee to ensure you're happy. Hey, if it doesn't work out, they'll find and replace the talent for free. Even better, 3% of all sales go to the Children's Hospital in Ukraine. At Growth Head, our agency, we've hired four people from Ukraine. I am blown away by the level of work we're getting. So whether you need a virtual assistant or a creative director, give this a try. Go to remotelytalents.com right now and start a conversation. See if they can help you. You really have nothing to lose.